Mandatory sentencing for attacks on emergency workers are proposed as a tough but fair health and safety measure to protect our frontline workers. Yet this approach has been shown to be ineffective while having a devastating effect on community members with addiction, severe mental health challenges and those subject to family violence. You're listening to Women on the Line. I'm Aoife Cook. The Victorian state government has produced a bill which proposes mandatory terms of imprisonment for any assault against an emergency services worker, which will be treated as a Category 1 offence, alongside large-scale drug trafficking, murder and rape of a child. Later in the show, I speak to community sector worker Vanessa Bourne, based in the metropolitan area of Melbourne, who, as an Australian Services Union delegate, is taking a stand against the proposed amendments. She also speaks more broadly about possibilities for increased health and safety for workers. But we open with Megan Fitzgerald, Social Action Policy and Law Reform Manager at Fitzroy Legal Service, to talk us through the bill and its likely consequences. I asked Megan to explain the proposed amendments. Yeah, so unfortunately in Victoria at the moment we've got some uh, a bill before the parliament and it has bipartisan support, so there's not much room for move movement but um, what it's proposing is that there'll be mandatory terms of imprisonment where an injury is caused to an emergency worker and uh, there's a significant limiting of the exemptions that would apply um, where for example it used to be the case that a person's circumstances rehabilitative prospects uh, their psychosocial maturity um, those types of considerations won't be given weight anymore that's what's proposed. So the current law at the moment is that there's a, a legislative hierarchy of sentencing where some people, um, in particularly emergency workers, um, are treated differently to other people in the community when they experience an assault. Um, and that's reflected in stricter sentencing. And the reason why that has been in law for some time or the justification that's been put forward around it is that because of the nature of their work, they're more likely to be exposed to those types of harms and there needs to be a deterrent against that occurring. Um, These laws are a significant ramping up of that regime, um, which has been a very concerning process because there's been uh, absence of consultation with a lot of other frontline workers who aren't classified as emergency workers who work with the same communities and work collaboratively with emergency workers to keep individuals safe and to keep their workplaces safe as well. Okay, and according to the legislation, who are emergency workers and what are their workplaces? So emergency workers is a, a sort of, a, it's, it's an unusual term. A lot of the focus has been on paramedics, but it also includes police officers and it includes staff members who are working in emergency departments of hospitals. So it's an interesting category of workers. Uh, It doesn't include a lot of other frontline workers who would be working with the same people. For example, Royal District Nurses outreach teams or homeless workers outreach teams. Um, It's quite a nebulous kind of group. Um, And I think there's very different situations that some of those workers have. So, for example, police members are armed and they have extensive training to deal with conflict situations. Um, when, when people are working in a correctional facility, there's particular 
protocols, there's a lot of surveillance. They're very different contexts that they're working in compared to a paramedic who's particularly vulnerable, I would say, as a layperson, well, as a non-paramedic. You know, they're going out to a call out. They don't know what they're going to be presented with. It's, it's, a, it's a very unknown kind of context. And a lot of the debate has focused on paramedics, which is interesting because paramedics have actually seen a 38% reduction in the number of assaults that they've experienced in the 2016, 2017, and that's from Ambulance Victoria reports. And that's been as a result, they say, of extensive training um, in de-escalation and risk management, which is where we would say the investment should be to prevent those types of instances occurring. It's quite hard to make the changes sound simple they're quite complex but essentially what you have is a move from what's called a minimum term sentence uh, where there still remains some discretion with the judiciary that's being limited a great deal and instead we've got a mandatory term uh, which has to be imposed Um, and what that means is that the circumstances of the particular case wherever you have a mandatory term of imprisonment you have a sort of tick box situation where the really specific circumstances can't be given weight of the incident and also of the individual offender so their particular moral culpability there's usually a whole bunch of things that we think about when we think about uh was what this person did um what what's what's the appropriate and just response to it the ability of the judiciary to weigh those factors is significantly reduced in this Um, situation. Yeah and we know of course a lot of emergency workers are coming into contact with people with a range of mental impairments disproportionately compared to the rest of the community. Yeah and I think there's a lot of procedural aspects to this as well so where a mandatory term of imprisonment is on the cards a lot more people are going to contest charges so there's a lot more costs that we need to look at in terms of people being on remand while we're waiting for hearings to happen and there's also forensic evidence and we're wondering where the resourcing is going to come for for the proof that people need in order to establish the defense Um, but it's also been a highly problematic process I mean the number one thing is mandatory sentencing uh, removes as removes the judicial discretion and it tends to result in trends that are already highly problematic in the prison population, which is an overrepresentation of people with mental illnesses, people from Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander background, people of colour, people who are experiencing more interactions with emergency workers just because of uh, a range of reasons. Um, and one of those reasons as well is homelessness, which is a rising issue. You know, if you're homeless, you uh, your day-to-day life is always under scrutiny. There's just a, a, a range of reasons why people might have more interactions and therefore be more likely to be caught up in this regime. You know, a lot of people, as well as yourselves, are saying that this is a political move that got momentum um, through a particular, what we might call a flashpoint case. So the, the case involved an injury to an emergency worker who um, that who and, and the sentence of imprisonment was appealed um, and, and taken to a higher jurisdiction. And um, some of the circumstances that were considered were rehabilitation of the uh, uh, offenders during the period, the delay period. 
um, their engagement with services to address the underlying causes of offending. Um, and these are ordinary considerations because one of the things that the court needs to look at is, is this an appropriate vehicle for deterrence? What are the what are the prospects for rehabilitation? Can this person get make a positive contribution to the community? That sort of thing. And some of the other circumstances were life circumstances, which included um, a very, very difficult situation of um, exposure to family violence, um, child sexual assault, these sorts of matters, which is very, very, very common in the cohort of community members that we deal with who often um, have quite difficult relationships with people in authority and also may have struggle with regulating uh, their own um, responses in tense situations. And I think one of the things that's been quite, I've been reflecting on quite a bit is that a, a childhood without violence is a privilege that people should actually contemplate how lucky you are if you get to grow up and not um, have that kind of uh, cognitive experience where your cortisol's riding high every time there's kind of a confrontation and none of that's to minimise the offending. There was um, a sentence imposed and it actually was quite a, I mean, it was quite a, it's not for me to say, but it, it involved a number of obligations and there was a lot of compliance involved in it, but it, it did not involve imprisonment. So the reaction to that was, well, it should have been imprisonment because this emergency worker is injured and that's just um, not on. Uh, but what it also didn't unpack is that uh, the types of harms that the women had experienced are the least likely to be subject to prosecution. Um, they're always, you know, one-on-one, -on -one, you know, type situations. So rape, um, child abuse, these cases are the cases where justice is almost never served. I'm not saying it's never served, but very rarely. Mm. And, and so we're not just talking about the two women in this case, we're talking about the gender dynamics of this mandatory uh, sentencing legislation and the people it's going to affect. So it's quite a broad analysis you're taking that's very strong. I, I think that and also as it's evolved, I think there's also the, the gendered aspect of it extends to consultation. Uh, women haven't been consulted, pig bodies have not been consulted um, that are involved in this space and, and it is, as the Premier has recognised, it's the number one uh, issue in our community is family violence and that disproportionately affects women and children. Um, so it's really a very, very gendered dynamic. We didn't make it that way, it just is and it's um, concerning deeply concerning and um, I guess the, what we really would like at this point is if there was some way for that consultation to happen so that those consequences can be considered and can be looked at in more detail. Um, but what seems to be happening is whenever there's an election period, there's a sort of law and order uh, race to the bottom, if you like, and, and it seems to be what the parliamentarians believe wins votes. Um, so if people want to make their voices heard and say, actually, that's not what I'm worried about. What I'm worried about is rent prices or whether I can get into the hospital when I need to or, you know, whether disability support is available to people, you know, whatever it is.
So in response to the proposed amendments, you've written a submission. As part of that submission, you gave a very interesting example. The case it was a Western Australian case, and it's um, it was the subject of an inquiry. Uh, and it involved a situation of severe family violence where a woman, an Aboriginal woman, had been injured badly and was found wrapped in a sheet. Uh, the In the course of police attendance, she assaulted a police member uh, by kicking and spitting. Um, she had a ruptured kidney and spleen, I believe. And um, it was treated as a... Uh, there was an inquiry into it because it was sort of dealt with as a abusive woman, abusive to cops woman type situation. Um, in the course of the evening, her partner who'd caused the harm uh, took her child and her child was um, sexually assaulted and murdered. And when that went before the courts in WA, the magistrate was able to not impose a mandatory sentence only because the injury, there, there hadn't been an injury that was adequate to meet the definition, but otherwise would have had to send that woman to prison. Um, and that's the type of circumstance we're talking about. There's, uh, you lose the flexibility to look at what's actually happened because it's a tick-the-box justice situation and the, some of those circumstances are incredibly painful. And I think one of the issues that comes up quite a bit is that um, in family violence attendances there is an issue around misidentification of who the aggressor is um, even in the mental health system there's a high overrepresentation of women who've experienced family violence and that's probably the core underlying issue of why they've got this engagement so there is this whole kind of gendered impact but it's also an impact that will be experienced by all marginalised communities. I don't like to use that word, but let's say all communities that have a higher engagement with emergency services because of signifiers of difference, um, they will experience the impacts of this in, in a way that other people won't. And, um, yeah, it's, it's just... Uh, there's no words really for us to, to bring to this other than... You know, I, I hope that people will understand that um, the, the struggle that I've really had with it is that at the same time as we have a Royal Commission into family violence and into abuse in state care, um, we're directing the legislature in Victoria is directing the judiciary to give significantly less weight to those questions. And when we try to think you weren't thinking of us when you did this, we are reminded that you were thinking you were thinking about us when you did this. You were thinking about women and who had experienced violence and how they would deal with emergency workers. That was what was on your mind. If I won't say when, I'll say if mandatory sentencing comes in, it puts family members and support people and community workers and friends of people who may be in distress or in trouble or have something going on, puts them in a dilemma situation about whether the police should be called, whether emergency workers should be called. What indirect side effects do you see happening here? I think there's enormous an enormous impact. It really constructs the dynamic between emergency workers and the community as an us and them type dynamic. Um, 
I think there's going to be a lot of situations where people wait until something really escalates before they contact the police. Uh, in the family violence space, it's particularly concerning because there's been so much work done to give women agency um, and con control over the consequences of their interactions with the um, justice system to ensure safety and to stop violence. And I think in a lot of communities, there's a fear, well, for me anyway, I'd say there'd be a fear of retribution. Um, you're going to think a lot more about calling in emergency services because if that doesn't de-escalate the situation and someone ends up in it's inside for six months, you know, there's going to be questions asked about who made that call. And so I, I think that actually the global safety outcome is um, adverse. And in Victoria, actually, I think it's important to note a couple of things. One is that um, in recent weeks, there was a release of a range of video footage of the police engaged in arrests that were the subject of a lot of criticism. Um, and in those cases, uh, in cases where there is an allegation of police violence, there's almost always a charge laid of assault police. Um, and it's interesting that this is occurring soon after that. And also in um, this uh, recent weeks as well, the um, head of ethical standards has stood down as a result of um, a range of racial vilification type posts that have been made online. Um, there's also been a really recent scandal of the police falsifying a whole bunch of, well, how many is it? 250,000 or a million, they're not sure, um, breath tests. And there's a kind of real <laughs> question around um, the, the, the law and order rhetoric when, when, you know, there's also this push to have a bit of independence in scrutiny over police conduct. I don't know. It's very political, but the consequences are actually matters that ought not to be political. They ought to be thought through in a very deep and structured way um, because they affect the most vulnerable people in the community. Where should the responsibility for increased worker health and safety lie? I think there's got to be a mixed response. And I think one thing is like if, if you think of an example of an in, in, what we would call an intentional cause serious injury, People will face a term of imprisonment, you know, like it's not like this, these matters are not treated seriously by the courts, they are. Um, but uh, there's also, of course, you know, and even for us in our work, you know, de-escalation, training, working out how to work with people who are, who've had a lot of trauma, who have complex post-traumatic stress disorder, who have mental illnesses, that's where the focus will be most effective. And there's a lot of evidence to suggest that mandatory sentencing doesn't actually prevent those incidents from happening. It just sort of creates this roving prison population. It's particularly harsh for first-time offenders. And an experience of criminalisation at an early age, it really sets a pathway that doesn't enhance community safety either. There was a small group of unions that were consulted and that's it you know like it's actually the ramifications are statewide and it seems to be a rolling thing um, but I, I, I question whether this law and order agenda is getting to a point where actually 
people will lose votes and I, I hope so because we need to pull it back. Uh, hi, my name's Vanessa Bourne. Um, I'm uh, a worker in the community sector and I'm a member of the Australian Services Union and I've been a, a delegate in the union um, for a number of years. You're part of a delegates group for the Australian Services Union, Victaz, in metropolitan Melbourne. Um, and recently your uh, group have come out against the mandatory sentencing legislation. Yeah, well, we all unanimously agreed that this was a terrible law and a terrible idea. There was no no opposing uh, views amongst us that, um, for the motion that was passed. And what are your concerns? Look, I think fundamentally we're unionists and we really support workers' safety. That's a really critical issue for us and we all agreed that action needs to be taken uh, to support emergency services workers. Um, but that's not what we think this law is going to do at all. We don't think it's going to be a law that promotes safety. We think it's actually quite a dangerous idea, um, fundamentally because mandatory sentencing doesn't work. We know it doesn't work. Um, it's been tried and tested across many different issues, and it fundamentally leads to putting people in further crisis, more suffering, increasing learnt bad behaviours and violent behaviours um, instead of providing uh, real change. There are other approaches to health and safety for workers that you have seen uh, over the course of your work. Can you explain what these might be? Yeah, sure. Look, I, I think, you know, I've got, a, uh, I've got friends that work in emergency services um, as um, ambulance workers. Um, so I've seen a lot of problematic issues with the processes there around health and safety. Um, I've had, you know, a friend that was assaulted and has been assaulted on a, a number of occasions. So, you know, assault is an issue for, for ambulance workers. And, you know, the support she received was close to nil. She had a, a very short meeting with management. Um, she was not provided with counselling and she was sort of walked away from that situation feeling like the message was, you simply need to tough up if you want to be in this industry. You know, there was not proper debriefing. You know, and if that's what happens after an assault take, takes place, you can only imagine how bad the processes are for preventing this and making sure that people are in safe spaces to begin with, that they have enough colleagues around them um, to, to sort of prevent those incidents in and of itself. So I think there's a lot around OHS that can be done um, within all sorts of services to make sure that, that workers aren't put into unsafe situations in the first place. The other side of that, um, which is another aspect of prevention and a really strong point about that, is about why these assaults are taking place in the first place. And I feel like this this law and this approach um, sort of thinks that it's tough on crime, but it's it's actually quite weak on crime because it's not... It's sort of a, a single attention-grabbing kind of idea. We're going to solve this and we're going to lock away all the bad elements of society. But what we actually see is that, you know, violent behaviours are learnt behaviours and they're behaviours often um, in these situations of people um, in severe crisis and you, you are increasing those things. We're not seeing investment 
in community services. In fact, we're seeing a lot of cutbacks in those areas. We're not looking at people receiving the support that they need, receiving education that they need um, and support they need to change behaviours or to not be in crisis in the first place where they're needing some emergency services to, to be coming into contact with them in the first place. So I think it's going to create a lot more problems. We're going to see um, increased lockups of, of vulnerable people. Um, we're going to see the, the economic burden of that on people. So there's just, where do you start? There's a whole host of problems, really, for this issue. And what's next for your motion? So our motion will be going to the um, Australian Services Union VICTAS um, executive for consideration um, at the end of this month, I believe, when they meet um, and they can support that motion and, and publicise it further, which we would you know, encourage and expect them to do as well. As a community services worker, if we don't manage to get the, um, this legislation stopped, how do you think that will impact on your sector? Oh, look, I, like I said before, I think this is dangerous. I think emergency services workers are there to deal with emergencies. And when you create situations where uh, calling emergency services puts uh, clients of community services at risk, I can only imagine um, the bad impacts that that ha- might have, the resistance people will have when they have people that are struggling with violent or erratic behaviour people that can become highly stressed um, when they're around people such as police, um, when they feel like they have um, people are trying to uh, give them medical care and they don't know why and they're not sure whether they're safe, uh, whether people are delusional. Um, all of those kind of aspects mean that um, it may not, they may behave erratically and there's a risk of that. And then by calling emergency services where there's a chance of mandatory sentencing that doesn't consider those issues, you're looking at, um, I think, people being reluctant to get that support. You're also possibly looking at people that work in emergency services being reluctant to report violent behaviour that's happened against them because they also understand the situations that people that that perpetrate those behaviours may be in and they may not agree with wanting them immediately locked up and they understand that that's not actually going to prevent those behaviours. So we're potentially seeing them not reporting that to their superiors and not getting the help and support that they need to deal with the violence they've encountered. So I think there's numerous ways that this can go wrong um, across a lot of different sectors. That was community services worker and ASU delegate Vanessa Bourne. And earlier we heard from Megan Fitzgerald from the Fitzroy Legal Service. The Justice Legislation Miscellaneous Amendment Bill 2018 is due to be discussed in the lower house of the Victorian Parliament when it sits again at the end of July. Women on the Line is a national women's current affairs programme made for community radio. It's produced and presented by a range of women broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Mm-hmm.